We've been making our way through a series called The Gospel Makes the Church. Last week, we looked at how the gospel makes the church one. We recognize that we are all different people, and there are going to be tensions between us, disagreements and frustrations that we have with each other, and that despite these tensions, God has called us to mission with each other. And we looked at how it's, it's the gospel, right? The message of Jesus that, that unites us, for the message of the gospel is for the Christian as much as it is for those who do not yet believe. And so the mission unites us just as the message of the mission is for all of us. This week we look at how the gospel makes the church missional. Now that word may be new to some of us, right? For others it it may be a bit of a bad taste in our mouth as as the context it's been used in isn't always great. If we look up the word missional in a physical like paper and binding dictionary, I'm not sure that the word's even there as it's kind of just entered into the Christian lexicon pretty recently. That said, if you were to look the word missional up online, you'll, you'll find a few different definitions or generalities that tell us that the word missional is related to or connected with a religious mission. Another place I looked said that missional is a Christian term that in essence describes living a missionary lifestyle. There are going to be different takes on this word, but when we use it here at Calvary, When we talk about it here at church, when you hear me say it from the pulpit, I'm talking about being part of the mission that God has called us to. To live missionally is to be actively, intentionally involved in the mission that God has called each of us to be a part of. And the gospel sends us on that mission. We're going to see that in our text this morning, Luke chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. The text is only two verses. But before we get there, we need to work through the context of the story. Jesus had been walking around, doing his thing, teaching and preaching and healing and and ministering to crowds. He he gets tired, and, and he needs a break. And so he and his disciples, they hop into a boat, and they go out into the water, right? And while in the boat, a huge storm kicks up, and... And Jesus is is fast asleep. The disciples, in their fear, they wake him up, and much to their amazement and awe, he calms the stormy seas. Then they sail to the region of Gerasenes. I am totally butchering that name. So if anyone here is from that region, I apologize, but I don't know how else to say it. But the region of Gerasenes, which is on the other side of this huge lake from the town of Galilee. As Jesus is getting out of the boat, a demon-possessed man approaches him. Now, this dude, this dude's a wreck, okay? First thing you notice, he's naked. He's worn his clothes to shreds. They're gone. He hasn't lived in a house for a while. He's been living out among the tombs, living in the graveyard of the town. When this man sees Jesus, he, he falls at Jesus' feet, shouting at the top of his lungs, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. This man had been seized by demons many times. Though he had been chained hand and and foot and kept under guard so that he wouldn't hurt himself or anyone else, every time he had broken the chains and been driven by the demons out to a solitary place. Jesus asked the man what his name is. The man responds, I am legion, for there were many demons possessing him. 
And these demons, knowing who Jesus is and the power that he possesses, plead with him, do not send us into the abyss. Nearby was a large herd of pigs. The demons beg Jesus to be sent into the pigs, and he acquiesces to their request. The demons rush out of the man and into the pigs, and the pigs run down this hill into the lake and and are drowned. Now, you don't have a herd of pigs out grazing all by themselves. You have people watching them. I don't know what those guys are called, like, or guys, ladies, I don't know who all did that, but I know shepherds, like sheep herds, are they piggards? I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on with that, but like, there's people that are watching these things, right? So these guys are watching them, and they, they witness all the things that take place, and, and they freak out, which is pretty understandable. Like, I get that. You know, you, you watch this dude, you know it's crazy, all these, whatever, goes into the pigs, the pigs run down the hill, they all die. Okay. Some weird, some weird's going on here. And so they rush and they tell everybody what happens. And the townspeople, they come to Jesus and they see, sitting at his feet, the man who was once possessed. He's got clothes on now, and he's in his right mind. How do you think the people responded to this? Like, this is a good thing, right? This is, this is what they've wanted to happen For so long. This dude has been a danger to himself and to others for so long. But as they see him sitting there, as they bear witness to what they've wanted to have happen, how do you think they respond? The Bible tells us that they didn't respond with joy or relief, but with fear. The power of Jesus didn't encourage them, it scared them. And so instead of asking Jesus to stay, instead of asking of getting to witness the power of God working on their behalf, they ask him to leave. And so Jesus gets in the boat and gets ready to go. So what happens with the man who had his life changed? What happens to the man who Jesus had set free? What happens to the man whose life has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is what we will read in our text this morning. Again, it's Luke chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to read along. If you, if you don't and you'd, you want to read on paper and ink, there, there are Bibles in front of you there, uh, in, in the pew in, yeah, in front of the pew in the back. I don't know how to say that, so it's said now. It's out there. It's online. But the words will also be on the screens if you would like to follow along with me there. We read the word of the Lord this morning. Luke chapter 8. Verses 38 to 39. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. And God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would Perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Often, when we think of being part of the mission that God has called us to, we think of the Great Commission. We think of Matthew 28, 18 to 20. We see Jesus rising up into the clouds and and giving his last proclamation to his disciples. Where we read that, yeah, we're, we're sent Uh, to all nations, to to make disciples. 
Some of us will turn a few books later to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where we read that Jesus says that those who believe, Christians, are to be witnesses to what Christ has done in our lives and in the lives of others. To, to Jerusalem, we're sent to Jerusalem, all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we look at this call to mission and we tend to focus on places like the ends of the earth, right? Overseas mission, far from home. We focus on the Samarias, places that are a little farther from home. They, they may not agree with us, where things might be harder for us, where, where we aren't in our comfort zones. Or maybe we focus on the Judeas. Mission on a national level. We've got a church plant going on in Boston, and yeah, man, like, let's support that. That, that sounds great. And, and then we, we kind of just want to stop there, don't we? Like that, that's kind of where we want to put, put the brakes on everything. We, we don't really want to talk about how we are also sent as witnesses for Christ to Jerusalem to our hometown. We're sent to where we're currently living. It's easier to think about doing mission, supporting mission, pretty much anywhere else, right? Cheers was an American sitcom series that ran from September 1982 until May 1993. It was based in a bar in Boston, a place where people hung out and they drank and they relaxed, they had a good time. And the theme song was pretty famous, and I would remember people singing along with the words. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to say it, all right? So you have to, that'll have to be enough. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to know where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. It's a catchy jingle. And I think there are parts of us that want desperately to believe that those words are true. But are they? In the mindset of mission, are they? Do we want to go to spend time with, to care for, to proclaim the incredibly important message of the gospel to those who know us best? To those who know the hard things we've gone through? To those who knew us in times of life that embarrass us? to those who have hurt us. Can you imagine being the man in the text this morning? Dude has a history. He's been sleeping in the graveyard. Dude's been running around town naked, scaring everybody's kids. Men, how would you feel knowing that some dude outside his mind is, is tearing around the town, the town your wife lives in, the town your kids are, are growing up in? Ladies, do you feel safe in this situation? You feel safe going to work or, or hitting up the market with that crazy man out there? You feel safe sending your kids to school with him prowling the streets? How many ghost stories do you think the kids of this town concocted to freak out their younger siblings and each other based off this dude alone? This guy's got a history. This dude has a past he's not proud of. He has a past that brings him a deep shame. He's hurt these people, and he's been hurt by them. He doesn't think he'll ever outlive the stories that will be told. He wants to get out of town. He wants to go with the man who has set him free. He wants to shake the dust of his feet off this dirty little spot and be gone. Man, hop in that boat. I'm out of here. He wants to leave behind the stories and the hurts. 
He's not proud of the things that he's done to others. He doesn't want to have to reconcile with the things that have been done to him. He wants to get out of Dodge and be gone with the people that have set him free. Because sometimes, sometimes it's really hard to be where everybody knows your name. We may not have been possessed by demons, though for some of us, possession would make a good excuse for the stupid, mean, selfish, sinful things that we've done. We may not have been demon-possessed, but we all have histories. We all have things that we're not proud of. We all have things that we have done. We all have things that have been done to us. And it's easier to think of mission taking place somewhere else, anywhere else, but here, in our towns, where we live, and where we grew up. Are we ready? Are we willing to hear the words of Jesus proclaimed to this demon-possessed man? Are we ready to hear the words proclaimed to us? Return home and tell how much God has done for you. For many of us, this is a difficult word from the Lord. Go back to the place that you've been running from, the place where you have been hurt, the place that holds so much embarrassment for you. Go to the people that you interact with on a daily basis. Go to the ones that you desperately want to like you. Go to the ones that know how awkward you looked and acted when you were going through puberty. Go to the girl that rejected your invitation to prom. Go to the guy that made fun of your braces. Go to the person that fired you from that job. Go to the person that filed your taxes. Go to the person who made fun of you in front of your crush. Go to the person that saw you get arrested. Go to the person that arrested you. Go to the person that wasn't wasn't popular in, in high school. Go to the person that others thought and maybe still think is a little weird. Go to the people of your town, the people that you know, and tell them of how much God has done for you. Church, how are we doing with that? These are the words of Christ. How are we doing with them? Are we going? Are are we proclaiming? Are we frequenting the restaurants and shops, the spaces and places that people from our past are frequenting? Or are we avoiding them? God has planted us here. You know, I don't know where you're from. I don't know where you're going. But I know that God has you exactly where he wants you. And right now, that's right here. And I, for one, am thankful for that. I'm ecstatic that you're here, that you're with us today, this morning, But it doesn't stop with us just being here, does it? Because God is calling each of us to be part of his mission right here, right now. And so I ask again, how are you doing with that? Are you doing anything with that? Are we ready to do something with that? If we're honest with ourselves, we're probably thinking, no. Not ready for that, but God doesn't really give the man in our story that option, does he? He just sends that dude in the mission. God doesn't wait until we're ready. Because for some things, we're just never ready. 
It's hard to know when we're ready to get married. It's hard to know when we're ready to have kids. It's hard to know when we're ready to get that real job. Hard to know when we're ready to move out. Hard to know when we're ready to move away. It's like, it's like we're birds in a nest, right? We're all gathered around, looking over the edge, going, yeah, nah. Not ready for that jump yet. And then in comes the mom and just starts tossing babies. Right? I mean, like, look, there's not enough room in that thing. Like, how are they supposed to live in that? Like, it's small. It's time to get out of the nest. We all know that it's really the dad, right, who comes in and is like, get out of my house. Like, it's time. I'm ready for you not to be here anymore. Get out. It's time for me to be able to do my thing. Go. And you know what? They can fly. They can fly. It doesn't, it doesn't look pretty at first. They're not all flying gracefully as eagles the first time they leave the nest. And they may never fly that gracefully. Especially not if there's some little pesky bird, right? But they fly. There are things in life that we just aren't ready for until we do them. And then we get stretched and, and we grow and God molds us and, and shapes us. And yeah, we mess it up sometimes. We aren't excellent at any of those things right away. Just ask my wife. Wasn't very good at the whole marriage thing right away. Ask my kids. Wasn't a fantastic father right out the bat, right? Like we're all learning. We're all growing. We're all figuring these things out as we move and as we go. Ask the church. I was not a great pastor. There's probably still many things that I need to work on and grow on as a pastor and involved in mission. We sit back. And we look at the crazy things we did before we think that we were ready. And we go, man, yeah, mistakes were made. But that's okay. We grow through those things. God doesn't wait until we're ready. He totally calls us before we're ready. His mission is too important to wait for us to gather the courage. So he calls us to it now. For this is the mission of the church. This is the mission that we have been given. This is the mission that God calls us to. Yeah, it's to go overseas. Yeah, it's to go to Boston and Washington and California or Florida or New Mexico or other places in our country farther from here. But it's also, for the vast majority of us, it's primarily to go to the people we interact with in our everyday lives. To go to the people of our hometown that maybe we're avoiding for one reason or another. God has called us to go to the people that know our names and to tell them of the good news that has changed our lives. Ready or not. We go with the message. The truth of a God who loves us so much that he sent his son from heaven, from utopia to earth. A place of rebellion against God, a place of suffering, sorrow, and pain. And Jesus came, he came and he lived with us and he suffered alongside us and he hurt with us and he knew what it was like to be thirsty and hungry. He knew what it was like to stub his toes and get blisters on his feet and hands. He knew what it was like to be hurt by others. For though he was perfect, though he did nothing wrong, though he lived a sinless life, he was betrayed and accused and convicted and he was sentenced to death on a cross, a death reserved for the worst of Roman society. And so up the hill to Calvary, Jesus carried the wooden instrument of his death, but that was not all that weighed him down. For with the cross, he also carried the sins of the world. Your sin, my sin, your neighbor's sin, the sin of those that you love, the sin of those that have hurt you, the sin 
of all people throughout all time was put on Jesus. And as he was nailed to the cross, as the nails went through his hands and feet, he was lifted up, presented naked and mocked to the crowds that hated him. The Bible tells us that there on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. That there on the cursed tree, Jesus took our sin, yours and mine, and because of our failings and flaws that he took upon himself, the wrath of God was poured out over Jesus, and there on that cross, he died in our place. It is our sin that deserves God's wrath, but Jesus took it upon himself. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we rest in the faith that Christ gives us, then the Bible tells us that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The dirty rags of our sin are are taken from us, and we are clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see the dirty, rotten sinners that we deserve to be seen as. Instead, he sees his son, He sees the righteousness of Christ, and because of Christ, because of faith, we are brought into the family of God. This is the gospel. This is the message that has saved our lives, saved our souls, and we are called to proclaim this message to others, to know those that know our names. God is not concerned about if we're ready. He's concerned about the life, the soul, the restoration of his relationship with those that he loves so very much that have not yet responded to his call on their lives. This is the mission that we have been given. And it's hard. Not just because of the history, but the consistency it requires. It's not easy to be in someone's life, you know? We love missions trips, right? And they can be good. But they also give us a false understanding of mission. Let's, let's bring a workforce of teens and adults to Mexico and help build houses for those that are in need. That's a great thing. That, that's a good thing. But there's a danger there as well because it can continue to reinforce that mission is done elsewhere. It's a missions trip. We don't think of our day-to-day as a mission day necessarily, do we? If you do, great. But I don't think that's the norm for many of us. Mission is exhausting. It's difficult to be in each other's lives like that. It's hard to see the needs needs that others have and to make the time to be there for them. But the difficulty doesn't really make any noise on God's Richter scale, right? It It doesn't move the needle. It's the mission that we're called to. I read an article last week that rocked me as I thought about the difficulty of everyday ministry and being in the lives of the hurting. Jonathan Sharks typically wrote about basketball for an online site called The Ringer. But on March 3rd, 2022, he released an article titled, Does My Son Know You? Where he wrote about his journey of being diagnosed with a very aggressive and very lethal form of cancer. The odds of him getting this particular type of cancer were 25 million to one. A doctor who is a friend of the family asked him, how it felt to get hit by lightning. In the article, he says that when you have a diagnosis like this, it's not a matter of of if, but, but when. They couldn't give him a timeline for how many years or months he had left. They could just promise to try and keep him going as long as possible. This was hard. Hard news for a young man who hadn't been married long and had just recently welcomed his son into the world. 
In the article, Jonathan writes about growing up with a popular father who had Parkinson's disease. The disease really took over when Jonathan was 12. Everyone was supportive at first. His dad's friends would swing by, bringing meals. They would drive Jonathan's dad places and help him get in and out of the car. But eventually, those visits began to dry up. Eventually, his father's friends got busy with their own lives. They had kids. They moved away. Life happened. His father passed when Jonathan was 21, and the funeral was filled with people that the young man hadn't seen in years. They all told him how sorry they were and asked whether there was anything that they could do, and Jonathan writes that all he could think was how he didn't know any of them. He knew of them. He'd seen them, but he didn't know them. And then in this article written on a secular site that was primarily dedicated to sports, Jonathan Charks writes about attending a church life group for the first time. He writes that the first week was awkward, that he was a little weird, that he was glad that there were snacks, and that when he was invited back the next week, he wasn't sure if he'd go. And seven years later, the strangers from that house are some of his closest friends. He writes that the life group went from being an obligation to something he looked forward to. It was the building of a community for him. They've committed to being in each other's lives. There are other things that come up, and it's easy to not be consistent. Jonathan got married. He had a kid. That complicated things. It, he didn't have the freedom he'd once had, but it was important to get together with these people, people who disagreed on a lot, who went through COVID together, and the political divides and agendas bubbled to the surface, and not everyone agreed with each other all the time. They sometimes fell on, on differing sides of the debate, but they loved each other. They invested in each other. They were committed to each other, and so they stuck it out. They made it through the Zoom season of life and are now meeting together in person once again. But those relationships couldn't cure his cancer diagnosis. In the article, Jonathan writes about wrestling with God, knowing that God could cure his disease, but choosing not to, and still being a good God. He wrestled with these realities, and though he admits to still struggling with that on occasion, he mentions some Bible passages that he's taking comfort in. James 1, 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Isaiah 1, 17, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Exodus twenty two twenty two. you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. It's clear to us why these verses matter to Mr. Jonathan Sharks. He knows that his time on earth is coming to a rapid close. And he wants to know that his wife and his son will be taken care of. He wants to know that the church, his community, won't neglect the mission that it's been given them. Because our mission, the mission to those we know and those that know us, is more than just a proclamation of the gospel, isn't it? We're called to be in the lives of the hurting. It means being the hands and feet of Christ to a world that is decimated by sin. It means resting in God's forgiveness poured out over us that we might go forth to those that know our name. Mr. Charks closed his article saying that he's already told some of his friends, when I see you in heaven, there's only one thing I'm going to ask. 
Were you good to my son and my wife? Were you there for them? Does my son know you? He writes, I don't want Jackson to have the same childhood that I did. I want him to wonder why his dad's friends are always coming over and shooting hoops with him. Why they always invite him to their houses. Why there are so many of them at his games. I hope he gets sick of them. He continues, one thing I have learned from this experience is that you can't worry about things you can't control. I can't control what will happen to me. I don't know how long I will be there for my son. All I can do is make the most of the time that I have left. That means investing in other people so they can be there for him. The article was published March 3rd. 2022, it didn't come across my timeline until a few weeks ago, the week that Jonathan Sharks lost his battle with cancer and left behind his wife and two-year-old son, Jackson. And I can't help but be shook by Jonathan's question. Does my son know you? No, I don't think any of us are ready for the missions that we have been called to the mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who know more about us or we know more about than we're comfortable with. The mission to be in the lives of those who are hurting. The mission to know and be known in spite of our hurts, in spite of our pride, in spite of the inconvenience that the mission is sometimes. God isn't waiting for us to be ready, church. So let us go forward. Let us be the hands and feet of God, but let us not be so worried about how we are known, but let us instead focus on making the name of, on making known the name of Jesus Christ. May the world know his name, that they may be saved by it. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, and merciful God we serve.